Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product Today. I'm here with Dan Olson. Um, Dan, second time guest, one of my few second time guests here on Product Love. It's, it's exciting, right? I'm a yes. I'm honored. It's always fun to talk with you, Eric, and I love being on your podcast. So I'm glad that we get a chance to do it again and talk about some new topics. Well, why don't you introduce yourself for those who haven't heard your first episode? And if they haven't, because it was one of the early ones, you know, when the listener base was a little smaller than it is today, I do recommend them going back and listening to it because there was some, there was some jabs there. Oh, that's all good. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I know your podcast has grown a lot. So yeah, that's uh, it's one of the downsides of being one of the early guests. Not as many people here, but they can always go back and listen to it. So yeah, my name is Dan Olson. I am the author of the Lean Product Playbook. It's a book on product management, basically how to develop successful products. My whole career has basically been in product management. You know, started my career at Intuit, where I learned a lot of great things. And after that, went to some startups. So uh, what I've been doing for quite a while now, actually, is just helping companies training product teams um, on best practices, coaching and consulting uh, basically to people on how to build great products and uh, doing speaking, you know, at various conferences, although that's died down with the, with the coronavirus situation. And I also run a monthly um, meetup here in Silicon Valley. We actually just last month, uh, this month, hit our six-year anniversary. So I've been doing it for six years. We have over 8,600 members it's called Lean Product Meetup. We actually switched that to virtual now because of the coronavirus. So we had our first virtual event. And yeah, so that's, you know, basically all about product management best practices, you know, sharing them with my book and speaking and the meetup and working with teams to help them. Awesome. Well, thanks. And, and welcome back. So today we wanted to talk about product planning, right? Yeah. So let's, let's jump into that. You know, what are you seeing as far as how companies are doing product planning? Yeah, I mean, I think what I see, I've been uh, in the last year, especially, I've done tons of product workshops, private workshops for companies, and many of them are big companies, and they honestly struggle with this. You know, they're trying to figure out agile development, right? A lot of them are going through an agile transformation, and so they're trying to get like their two-week sprints going, but they still basically are trying to hit these quarterly roadmap, you know, goals. And so it's very challenging, you know, it's hard enough for companies going through an agile transformation to get agile going. But then to also try to hit these kind of quarterly dates, it's, it's really tough. And I, I just don't see a lot of companies doing a great job on kind of product planning. And what I'm, we should talk, I guess, what we mean about product planning. Product planning means like, you know, beyond one or two sprints, like usually for a quarter, figuring out what are the things that we should do, right? That's basically, what are the things we want to commit our resources to? It's really about resource allocation and prioritization, right? And I just see companies not really doing it explicitly, doing it more by the seat of their pants right? Or maybe coming up with a spreadsheet that everybody kind of looks at and says, yeah, I think we can do that. But it's not really rigorous. It's not really kind of, you know, really planned out. And I'm not talking about like a Gantt chart, you know, waterfall Gantt chart or anything like that, but just at a high level, okay, we have this many developers. Here's a list of things we would like to do. How do we rationalize that and come up with a plan? So I just see a lot of companies struggle with that. Yeah. Talk me through why you think they're struggling. Yeah, I think the bottom line is, especially public companies, they have to hit, they have investors and they have to hit their, you know, milestones, right? They set these expectations in the marketplace. And so even if you're trying to be agile, 
you know, it's tough because the leadership team wants to hit these dates. It's amazing how many features ship on March 31st every year, right? <laughs> All the features kind of ship for these big companies, you know, the kind of quarterly deadlines become the forcing function, right? And so as companies, especially trying to do agile, if they're not, if they haven't built that muscle up, it can be super challenging. On the one hand, they're telling teams, yeah, yeah, you guys do this two-week sprint thing. But by the way, you still got to hit all these big milestones on March 31st. You got to launch all this stuff. And so there's no guarantee that those two things match up, right? It's just like kind of there's no, they could be completely decoupled in reality, right? And, that, and it makes sense why leadership wants to be able to know what will launch by when. They need to set expectations, you know, for their executives, for the CEO, for customers, partners, everything like that. And Agile, you know, isn't really set up to hit dates per se. So that striking that balance between bottoms up Agile and tops down, you know, trying to hit date is really tough. I mean, each on its own is tough. And then trying to do the two in concert is tough. And I think one of the big things you need in order to do it is you have to say, okay, we're actually going to try to plan out for the quarter at a high level what the what resource allocation should be. And so to do that, you got to do high level estimates, right? In a sprint, you're going to be using story points, you know, Fibonacci sequence and getting your velocity. And so that's actually in some ways easier because it's like, okay, at this point we've broken things down. We understand what they are. It's easier to scope them. In order to do high level planning, you need to do the parallel thing at that level. In fact, one of the clients I work with, they had a, a relatively new CTO where they were having the same thing. They, you know, the symptoms of having bad product planning are you don't hit your dates, you're not hitting your roadmap, those kind of things. That was the situation he was in. And he basically used a similar kind of story point process at the high level for all the things they wanted to get done you know, for that time frame. And so you need to have high level estimates. We're not talking about story points here. Obviously, you know, if you're just doing high level planning, we're talking like, you know, maybe people weeks or people months are the units that we're talking about. As I always like to say, the scope estimate, it's not fair to ask engineering, like give them some little spec or little, and ask them to say, well, how many weeks is that going to take? Right. It's like, Hey, I want you to build me an online grocery. How long is that going to take? You know, that's not really fair because we gave them a two word spec and we're asking for clarity. So kind of the fidelity of the estimate that we get back from development is kind of proportional to how much we spec it out. And we don't want to be a waterfall and have to like write a whole PRD before we can estimate anything. So that's the trick. And that's the balancing act is how do we do high level rough scoping? So that we kind of just make sure we're not biting off too much of the pie and do the resource allocation and then kind of give the team the autonomy to run with that direction uh, and then proceed in an agile manner. Yeah. And, you know, from uh PRDs. I wonder. I wonder how many of the product managers out there, especially the younger ones, even know what a PRD is these days. Oh, yes, that's true. Product requirements document or a market requirements document. You know, and this is the thing. When I started my PM career, ran into it. I, I talk about this all the time. It's like you're an eager beaver. You want to do a good job, so you take like you look at last year's PRD and say, okay, that thing was 50 pages long. I'm going to even be more detailed. You know, every spare hour I have, I'm going to flesh out the requirements more. I'm going to think of corner cases here, adding and adding and adding to this doc, thinking, you know, you're kind of getting closer to perfection somehow or, you know, something like that or higher accuracy. The reality is there's diminishing returns and you don't know what you don't know, right? And so at the end of the day, yes, we want to have a high, sen- high, high level sense of what we want to accomplish. We want to give teams the autonomy to flush out what that really means and kind of, uh, you know, define it and create it in, in, in an agile manner, basically. And that, that's basically the balancing act. So, now, the other thing is, when you, if you don't do these estimates, it's basically like this aspirational list. And I've seen it. People make a list. So step one is you have a list of the features you hope to get done in the quarter, right? And you have a list. And usually that list is longer than you can do. So 
Step one is, do you have a list? Step two is, did you draw a cut line where you think as far as you think you can get to, right? But we're still talking about not having any estimates. So it's pure like aspirational. Yeah, it's like I'm putting your thumb up there and going, yeah, I think we can do that, right? I think we can get that done in the next three months. The risk is pretty high that you're not going to get that done. The next level is, hey, let's do some high-level estimates. You know, people weeks, you know, developer weeks, developer months, developer sprints, some unit like that. You know, we got 10 developers. There's 13 weeks in the quarter. So we have 130 developer weeks. How much do we think roughly each of these is going to take? That gets you to, you know, another degree of lower uncertainty when you do that. And, you know, if you don't do that, it's basically how do you know that this is all adding up to 100% of the pie? Because people, the thing that kills me sometimes is people act like the pie can stretch and you can have more than 100% of the pie, right? And even if you get this all nailed down before the start of the quarter, let's say for a second, let's maybe wave a magic wand and say, okay, we actually did a good job, like Dan said. We got it all figured out. Of course, there's some uncertainty and scope uncertainty and estimation error that's going to happen. But as near as we can tell, we, we made the tough call and drew the cut line at 100%. We didn't make the pie bigger than that. The problem is it's not static. You know, The second the quarter starts, if it's not week one, week two, someone's going to have a new idea, right? Someone, you know, some executive is going to you know, wake up in the morning with a new idea or you're going to see something a competitor did or something like that. And they're going to say, oh, hey, guys, we got we to gotta do this thing, right? That's going to happen multiple times during the quarter. The problem is people just kind of add it to the list. You know, especially with the culture of a company is to not say no, but to say yes. If it's a very hierarchical company or political company, nobody wants to be the one looking the executive in the eye saying, I'm sorry, we just don't have resources to do that during this time frame, right? They don't want to do that. And so they just add it to the list. But the problem is they don't remove anything from the list, right? So at the end of the day, it's a zero-sum game. We only have those 13 developers or 10 developers for 13 weeks. Zero-sum game. And so I actually kind of call it product accounting. You know, it's perfectly fine if new ideas come up, but then we got to pull up the old ledger and say, okay, which thing do we want to bump? This new thing we think is going to take, you know, six developer weeks or six developer sprints. What do we want to bump from that, right? And that's how we kind of stay on track. So that's what I see happening is a lack of estimates leads people to be aspirational at the start. They are. So they're already starting above 100% and then new stuff comes in. And without realizing it, when that new stuff comes in and they put on the list, stuff is slipping off the list, right? Stuff's just not going to get done. Or the quality is going to take a huge hit, right? Or the scope is going to take a huge hit. But usually just things just drop off the list and go th- don't get done in that time frame. Have you seen that happen, Eric? Yeah, I've definitely seen that happen. I, I'm curious, there's been different ways to deal with it, right? Where like there's some people, you know, like Ryan Singer and in, in Up, they talk a lot about just, hey, you know, if it's not an emergency, you, you push it into the next list, so to speak. And they cut their list in a small enough chunk. I believe it was six weeks was kind of their optimum where like, Hey, this is what mm. this is the problem we're solving in the next six weeks. Right. So there's different approaches to it and you can be like, Hey, you know, new ideas get pushed to, you know, or at least new ideas from a standpoint of not how to implement the existing problem you're working on, but new things to do get pushed to the next set. Right. And you try yeah. to update it that way. That's a good, I mean, that's basically taking agile and up leveling it to longer time frame, which sounds great. Right. The problem is, you know, let's just be honest, even teams that, the funny thing is sometimes they go into a place that's doing an agile transformation, like, well, just so you know, some people are, you know, kind of weaponizing agile. And I'm like, what do you mean weaponizing agile? I said, well, they're saying we're agile. So at any point, any time, they can tell us, hey, you need to go do this and we need to drop everything and go do this. That's what they think agile means. And people don't understand that the whole point of Scrum is no, well, we're working in two week increments. So anything that comes up, yeah, we're not going to drop everything now, but we can get to it within two weeks if we want to, if we agree it's highest priority, right? So I do see too many people thrashing the sprints, right? New ideas are coming in, 
that's, as we all know, the work of developers, it's highly disruptive to be task switching developers. And the whole point is, hey, we've achieved a higher level of agility than we had if we weren't working in two-week sprints, but, but people take it too far. So the same thing happens there, right? Very few companies would have the discipline to say, no, no, we've got the six-week plan, you know, and that would be like three sprints, right? So you're basically kind of doing a three-sprint plan. If you're doing two-week sprints, you're saying, hey, let's have a more solid plan for three weeks out, three sprints out. Very few companies in my experience have the discipline for someone to say, oh, no, sorry, we already got this, these next three sprints locked and loaded. We can get to that, you know, in four weeks or two or four or five weeks, but we can't do it right now. And so I think, and that's, you know, just to give it a name, it's kind of like shiny object syndrome. Every, I see so many people fall into this where it's like, oh my God, the guy did this thing, you know, and there's a lot of kind of craziness and you just don't, and a lot of times it's like ready, fire, aim. Oh my God, what's our, you know, let's let me think of something. Yeah, I mean, the chat- what's our chatbot? What's our cha- what's our chatbot strategy? Oh my God, we need a chatbot. Let's go build a chatbot. And you go and build a chatbot. You don't even know why you're building a chatbot. You don't know what, why, what customer problems you're solving, any of that stuff, right? So those are the ones where it's great to push off. It's the other ones that that you know you do have things to emergencies, so to speak, that comes up more often than than you might think. And there's an argument that maybe a lot of those aren't emergencies, and that might be true. It's this balance between you know you don't want to chase that shiny object, but you do want to be you know, quote unquote, agile enough uh, that you yeah. can adjust the things that really are important without waiting, you know, two or six or eight weeks, whatever it happens to be. But I, I think there's a good argument to be made that in a lot of cases, those things that you think are important to address immediately really aren't. Yeah. And that's why, it, yeah, that's why it all comes back to prioritization in my mind. It's like, okay, because it's like any product idea, you know, it's like a cute puppy when you look at, it. oh, look at this, look at this product idea. Isn't it so, oh my gosh, it's so cute. Yeah, yeah of course. And you look at the next idea, oh, this one cute, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's like, right? If you look at each idea in isolation, of course it's a good idea and we should do it. The problem is we have a constraint of limited resources. And so that's where it comes down to prioritization. We, uh, you know, as painful as it may be, we have to prioritize which puppy of all these really is the cutest, AKA the most valuable, right? And unfortunately, you know, and that's where like, the cool thing is, that, again, this is where you get into kind of group dynamics and politics. Nobody wants to say, oh, it's okay if we sacrifice that puppy. We don't need that puppy. You know, no one's going to do that, right? No one's going to do that publicly. But if you do kind of crowdsourcing mechanisms, like multi-voting. So multi-voting is great. Say you have like a list of, you know, 20 things that you're considering doing for the quarter. You basically give like each of the stakeholders, right? You give them, you divide it by three. So what's that, like uh, six or six or seven. You give them like seven dots and you have them vote and you put the dots out. And the good news by doing that is, the cutest puppies rise to the top naturally and the ugliest puppies rise to the bottom and nobody killed the puppy. Nobody pulled the trigger on the puppy, right? It's just, it just kind of naturally does it. So that's a good way, you know, because again, if, if you were to talk about it, at the end of that, you talked about the puppy that got ranked the lowest, everyone would suddenly be like, oh my gosh, you're right. We need to do it. Like by focusing on it, you know what I mean? But we have to like say, okay, what's our prioritization? You have to be ruthless about prioritization, which is product managers, one of our main jobs is to take all the inputs throughout the org and say, okay, based on what I'm hearing, Here's what I think the prioritization that makes sense is. And then you've got to have some sense of estimates of resources so we can draw a cut line, right? And yeah, even on that, there's some nuance. Yeah. I was going to say, do you think when you're giving people votes and doing a voting system, do you think that leads to mm-hmm. a lot of like short-term thinking as opposed to long-term thinking? I'm not saying that's the best way. To, just to clarify, I'm not saying that's the best way to do your prioritization. I'm just saying if nobody is willing to kind of say that something's low priority, that's a way to get out of that trap, Right. I, I think you want to have kind of, you know, more rigorous prioritization techniques than that, but it's just a way 
to kind of get people to acknowledge that, okay, yeah, those three or four ideas, eh, they're not, maybe they're not really critical for this time period. Yeah. Because there's even, you know, there was some article recently about some company that did things this way and, and just saying how it wasn't really strategic or delivering value. And I kind of agree with that, right? You got to have a sense of what's going to create value. That's just a way to get a crowd to agree on what are the lower priority ideas. So you can kind of hopefully put them in the parking lot and get people to stop focusing and talking about them, you know, and then we can focus on the true, true prioritization of the remaining ideas, but just bringing up the dynamics again, where nobody's going to kill an idea. Yeah. I like doing that with uh, you know, small group dynamics. And what I mean by that is say, if you go to sales, say, Hey, you know, let's prioritize, you know, we give to the different sales people and sales executives votes on what's important to the sales team. And then you get a list from sales and you can, that's, that's stacked ranked for what they think is important. And then you can feed exactly. that into the overall product direction, right? As totally agree. Salespeople being like, I need this, I need this, I need this. Now you no, have- that's exactly, exactly. Each person thinks their idea is the highest priority idea within sales, right? And so it's just like you're, you're shining a mirror back and say, okay, in the last three weeks, I've gotten these 30 ideas from all the different people in sales. Head of sales, help me on, you know, help me prioritize this, right? And so you can, I agree with what you're saying. I think it's especially useful there because part of, you know, PM's job is to prioritize. But I think if you're getting multiple requests from the same org, it's perfectly fair to shine a mirror back to them and say, okay, hey, I've gotten these requests from you. Can you please prioritize these for me? You know what I mean? So that I can operate these in the back, you know? Yeah. So that, I think that's really important. So yeah. talk to me about other issues you see teams running into with planning. Well, you brought it, you brought it up, which is, is it really an emergency or not? Like that's the thing. So this whole hundred percent pie analogy, there's a difference between planned work and unplanned work. And so as we all know, things could do come up, like not, not, Hey, these shiny objects that come up, but like, Hey, the site went down or, you know, we've got to do this maintenance or we found this bug or we really do have this urgent thing. This client has this major, major client has this major problem. We got to kind of drop everything and address this P0 bug kind of a thing. So that comes up, right? And so the, the issue is you're really going to end up having less than 100% of your resources for planned work. The question is how much, right? And that's the thing is it's kind of like, uh, yeah, it always makes me think of like, you know, Charlie Brown with the football and Lucy's not going to, I'm not going to pull it. I'm not going to pull like everybody, everybody falls into the groundhog day trap where they just forget about the overhead that they had. Right. And it is noisy. So people be like, well, we don't know how much maintenance we're going to have. Well, if you just go back and look, it's probably going to have some steady state average despite the noise. It's probably going to be somewhere around 15 to 30%. That's pretty typical. And so if you know that, why would you keep doing Groundhog Day and assuming you're going to have 100% of your resources, right? So it's like, that's the trap I see people fall into. And they, and they fall into it at the sprint level too, you know? Let's say they're like, hey, I think we can get 30 points this sprint. And then, you know, after the sprint happens, you only get 23 or 25 because unplanned stuff came up. Well, the next time, don't use 30 use 23, 24, 25, right? So that's part of it too, is acknowledging that, you know, that stuff's going to happen. And so there's a difference between planned work and unplanned work. And, uh, you know, that's another problem I see is when people do that 100%, like I just said, hey, I got 10 developers, 13 weeks, 130 developer weeks. Let's fill up our product plan for the quarter with 130 developer weeks. Well, what about maintenance? Like that's what happens, right? So you should really kind of give it a haircut, maybe 20, 25% or just check out, check it out, you know, on what you're, what you feel. If you've got JIRA, maybe you can track it, you know, track, kind of quantify a little more. It's not about getting perfect. It's just about acknowledging that, Hey, stuff's going to come up. We don't know exactly what's going to come up, but we know typically this amount of work comes up. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's good things to take into account. And then there's, there's like, you know, it all comes down to, well, one of the things that comes out to too is this technical debt, right? Right. That's true. Yeah. And that's another thing too, is, 
and technical debt's funny. So I actually was teaching a workshop and one brave woman raised her hands like, oh, what is technical debt? So it's, it's interesting, you know, just to define it first in case people aren't familiar with the term. The idea is technical debt is kind of like if you knew, so we're all kind of, you know, we're developing quickly, trying to develop quickly in, in a sprint in Scrum, you know, doing it quickly. The idea kind of is, hey, if after I code, say you're the developer, after you coded it, if I knew what I knew now, I would go back and code it differently, right? To make it more scalable, to make it more maintainable, whatever it is, right? So anytime we kind of cut corners from what a, a, a kind of a better technical implementation would have been, we're silently incurring a little bit of technical debt, right? And it's like real debt. It kind of builds up over time. And if you don't pay it off, it can get out of control. And so usually, you know, like that implies, hey, we, you know, now we know, we know, we didn't know how users are going to use this. We weren't sure how this module was going to relate to this module. Now that we know, we would refactor it this way to make it all work better and be extensible, right? That's technical debt, basically. And what happens usually is it gets deferred because the dev team is saying, hey, we got technical debt. And like the business side of the house is, yeah, but we got to get these features, you know, to drive revenue. And usually what happens is it gets to a tipping point. And like the, you know, the head of engineering is like ready to like throw himself on the railroad tracks unless we like do something about it. Cause like the site keeps tipping over and you can see it. There's usually a lot that kind of uh, that maintenance and live site issues tend to shoot up kind of increase when you've got more technical debt and you can kind of see that, you know, so there's some tactics on how to do it. Again, one account for it in your planning. And, you know, there's, there are a couple of ways that I see teams do it. One is they allot a certain number of points per sprint for technical debt kind of like a follow-up, like, okay, hey, we know the stuff that we built in sprint five, we're going to learn after we do it. So in sprint six, we're going to allocate a few points to go back and kind of refactor you know, the whole thing, maybe just make it better now that I know what I know. That's one way is like this, a slice of each sprint. That can be tougher teams to do, especially when they're trying to get features done, but that's one way to do it. The other way is just like, hey, one and end sprints. Okay, hey, every five or six sprints, we're going to take a break, you know, of building new stuff and go back and fix bugs and refactor and pay down some technical debt. So those are kind of the two techniques that I see teams do. And, and then the other thing that people do, they just ignore it forever. They put their head in the sand until like the whole kind of stack almost keels over. And then it's like this big bitter pill to swallow, right? We got to refactor it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So anything else we haven't talked about on as far as like issues? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of relates into kind of how, it's kind of related to that. One of the main reasons you have technical debt or want to refactor is you get dependencies between teams. Yeah. I think Um, cross team dependencies. Yeah. Transitions. Yeah. And and, you know, some of it is, it kind of not to get too technical, but it kind of gets into kind of the code base a little bit, right? It's like, okay, if we put this team in charge of this part of the code base and this team in charge of the code base, you know, you can do that in different ways where the amount of how much coupling is or how much dependencies is there, right? In an ideal world, each team is 100% autonomous. You know, they control all their own code. There's no dependencies with our team. But as we know, that's not the real world. You know, if you think about the worst case scenario for a second, not that anybody has this, like every team would have a dependency with every other team. That would be horrible, right? We would ground to a halt with the amount of coordination that, that's required. So you can kind of think of this ratio between zero to one of how much dependency or coupling is there between teams you know, and the higher it is, the more dependencies there are and the more coordination there's going to be, the trickier the planning is going to be, right? Because now you get into things like, okay, we're working on the front end, but we need this from the back end team, but they didn't have it on their sprint in time for us to get it. So now we're delayed, right? So you can kind of get these dependencies can end up causing delays, right? And the number one thing to manage, it's just kind of going to happen. Some of it's going to happen. You can try to minimize it in different techniques that we can talk about. But the main way to kind of get your head around it is to do scrum of scrums and just say, okay, 
And it's funny because a lot of teams that are doing agile, they have their, the agile teams are kind of humming along, but they're kind of struggling with these cross unit dependencies and they just haven't proactively set up these scrum and scrumming. So scrum and scrum meaning is just like, Hey, if our team tends to uh, have dependencies with these other two teams, let's just set up a recurring meeting. You know, we need it every week, every other week, twice a week, whatever it is. Let's set up a meeting to make sure that the stuff we need from them is getting on their backlog for the next sprint and vice versa. Right. So that's the main, the main technique I see people, you know, impacting on how to, how to minimize the impact that at least plan for it. Because what happens otherwise, again, back to the lack of things, people get surprised about these dependencies and then they miss their dates. And then they sometimes are like, I have no way of getting my thing on that other team's backlog. So they're like blocked indefinitely, which is a pretty sad situation when that happens. Yeah, and I've seen people just, you know, have different teams building, the, in essence, the same thing so they can avoid yeah. <laughs> other teams. Yeah, no, it's funny. Yeah, it, and actually, it's funny. This came up with one of my teams. I was just doing a training workshop, and it came up with the definition of done. So definition of done is an agile concept. Like, how do we really – it sounds a little philosophical. It's like, how do we really know when the story's done, right? Is it when the product owner says it's done? Is it when we – you know, put it in the integration environment. Is the one QA test it? Is the one it's live on production? And so I kind of brought this discussion up with a, a group that had a lot of developers in it, and there were a lot of cross-team dependencies. And one guy raised his hand and said, "Well, for our team, it's not done until it's on production." I'm like, "What? Like, what? How can? Yeah, I mean, that's called launch. That's called live. We have different states." And so it was like these three different definitions are done. One team was extreme. I'm like, "Why are you saying it's not done until it's on production?" You know, as opposed to like, the, you know, when we, the team says it's done and we committed it to the code base, right? He's like, well, because we have dependencies and we keep getting burned when other teams say it's done, but then we can't use their code because it's not accessible because it's not on production. So we took this. So they kind of took this self-defense extreme version of definition of done. And talking with the group, we ended up with like three different definitions of done. That group had the extreme, it's on production. Some other group had, it's like, hey, when it's on a certain environment and someone else had a different one. So it may seem silly, but we need, we can't use the same word done for three different definitions. We need like live on production as one state, you know, done as far as our team is concerned as another state, like done with cross team dependencies is another one. So that kind of, those are the three different dones that kind of came up. So, so it does, you know, again, back to what you're saying, how you structure your teams can impact this, right? You can kind of, structure your teams in a way that kind of goes against the nature of the code base and the way they need to work or kind of with it. And the way this typically comes up is, you know, another thing that I didn't talk about, I was trying to just get to level one planning is we say, Hey, we have 10 developers for 13 weeks. Well, if you dig a little deeper, not all 10 developers have the same skill set. At a minimum, we have front end developers and back end, right? You got front end web, back end server, iOS, Android. Those are distinct skill sets. And so that same idea of, well, let's figure out how many we have of each resource and plan it. You need to kind of break it down to the next level. But most teams aren't even doing it at the global development level, right? So a common thing that comes up is, okay, great. We've got front-end devs and back-end devs. And as we know, to build a feature, they need to work together. We need a front-end and a back-end. And so the question that comes up is, okay, should we have a front-end scrum team and a back-end scrum team? Or should we split them up and put like front end with back end on different features and different companies do it different ways. The con, if you split them up, is you're setting yourself up across team dependencies, right? The front end team can't do anything until the back end team builds the API or the back end for it, right? So that would be an example where you're setting yourself up. It may make sense. They may like working together so they can compare notes on front end development and your manager is a front end developer, those kind of things. So that's kind of the stuff, you know, being mindful about how you organize the teams in relationship to the work that they need to do for the code and what dependencies it implies can, can make a big difference. So sometimes 
the best way to reduce crossing dependencies is to reshuffle how you assign devs on your teams. And that's also why I kind of back to technical debt as well, like APIs and abstraction are a good technique to reduce that coupling between teams, right? And making the code more modular so you don't have these dependencies between teams. Yeah, I think modular code affects a lot. And I'm, I'm a big fan of taking front end and back end and having them on the same team. I mean, you could still run into the dependencies, though, because if you yes. know, a single team is signing a task, if you don't have enough back ends in their backlog, your front end guys could be just sitting there twiddling thumbs waiting for stuff. Totally. There's a balancing of them, but also, and you can still have crossing dependencies. Maybe that feature team needs, you know, needs some other API that some other teams in charge to be extended. But if you split them, you're setting yourself up every single item. Most of the items are going to have a dependency, right? Anything that needs a backend call is going to have a cross-team dependency. So you're just kind of setting yourself up for a more painful situation if you split them up in general. And like, not that it's going to avoid any dependencies, as you were saying, right? You could have that's more of a load balancing issue, I think, of the, you know, the front end back end ratio. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about a lot, you know, on, on product planning. We talked about, you know, Agile in two weeks and how that fits into quarterly and annual planning. We've talked about, you know, how people, you know, will put stuff more on top of a pie that's already at 100%, right? Yeah. We've talked about, yeah. you know, how, you know, if your team can't knock out, say, 30 points in each sprint, you only knock out 23 to 25, but you're always planning with 30, that, that's probably, you know, a process that sets yourself up for failure. We've talked right. about cross team dependencies. We've, we've talked about team structures. Have we missed anything? Anything really important on, on the product planning side? Well, I think, I think it just kind of naturally, we haven't brought up the word roadmap that much, but it naturally plays into a roadmap, right? Because roadmaps are the kind of statement of the product planning at a high level. And so I think all the things that we said about challenges that teams are running in with product planning run into roadmaps. Roadmaps tend to be very aspirational and not necessarily grounded in reality, right? It's, again, just a list of features. And, you know, I was kind of focusing on quarterly product planning and most of how I was thinking about it and talking about it. You know, as we know, roadmaps tend to span multiple quarters, you know, at least three, usually four, sometimes six, eight, six to eight quarters. And usually it's like three to eight quarters on a roadmap is what you typically see. And so you see these kind of things. And so I think that kind of what you're saying that other team does, you know, the mindset of, hey, the near end it is, the more defined and definite it is. And, you know, if it's six quarters out, everyone should understand that that is not a rigid commitment. It's just, hey, that's our kind of tentative plan right now. And as we get closer, we're going to update the roadmap, right? So it can be helpful to do high level. But again, back to what I was saying, you know, I said basically, hey, that the fidelity of the estimate is proportional to the fidelity of the spec. The farther out it is, the more uncertainty there is. So, you know, I think it kind of has implications for you don't want to have your product roadmap go out too far because you're kind of wasting time about things that could change and you don't necessarily want people scoping stuff, right? But again, back to what I was saying, many roadmaps, there's zero scoping input. There's zero input from, you know, maybe at a high level, we showed it to the head of engineering to give get a general thumbs up or thumbs down, but that person doesn't have the information they need to make an educated opinion, right? You know, there's a little box that says online grocery and the, the PM, you know, made it last three months on the bottom program. Is that right or not? Who knows, right? So a lot of times you just kind of get these passive, eh, sure, whatever. You get those kind of like reactions because they don't have enough information to properly assess it. They don't have enough information to say no, dig in their heels and say, oh, heck no, there's no way I can do that in three months. And they don't have their the information they need to say, oh, yeah, definitely I can get that done. So they just kind of go, yeah, sure, whatever. And you know that, hey, maybe that'll change. Maybe silver optic syndrome will change that before we get to it. You know, So I think, again, for the near part of your roadmap, you want to follow the techniques we were talking about today. 
account for maintenance, account for live site issues. You know, you're not going to have hundred percent of the pie, prioritize your list, estimate it. And again, to be clear, I was talking about estimating at a high level. You know, if you've got 10 devs, you kind of need to go one level deeper and say, we got front end devs, back end devs, you know, iOS, Android, and for each of the features, estimate that at that level. You don't want to go crazy too detailed, but just breaking the devs into the distinct resource pools at that high level will help you have a higher, higher confidence plan, basically. So I think you want to apply some of these same techniques we're talking about to roadmaps as well. I think that's been great. Any parting words? No, just that it's tough. I mean, getting, you know, teams that are going through an agile transformation, it's tough because they're learning new skills and building new muscles. And so they're usually coming from a waterfall world where it was always about dates. It was like, hey, tops down. You need to launch this feature by this date. On March 31st, here's the six features you need to launch. I don't care. Figure it out. Like, just get it done. Like, that's kind of the, you know, the old school tops down waterfall mentality. And then we tell teams, okay, we're going to do agile. And they're trying to build those muscles and change, you know, and so they kind of have a foot in both worlds. They're being asked to work in an agile way, but they're still being asked to hit those deadlines. I just want to acknowledge that super tough. Each of those is super tough. Getting, building your agile muscles quickly, if you've been a waterfall shop, is tough. And getting better at product planning, which is more of a leadership thing, frankly, right? We're talking about director and VP of product that should be driving those kind of things. That's tough as well. And I think part of the issue is um, there isn't necessarily a standard template or process. You know, hey, here's how you do it. Like, you know, we both went to business school. But, hey, did, did you know, do you need, you know, is it, just pull it off the shelf and fill out the form. That's how you do it. It's not like that, right? Somebody's got to step up and say, okay, what are all the features? Let's prioritize them. Let's get them scoped out. By the way, we need to give engineering enough information to get the scopes, right? And then, you know, I think something else is helpful is just like, don't have a single cut line. You can have like, you know, two or three cut lines. You can say, this is the definite list. You know, this is like, we have a cut line really high that these are the six things that we're really confident we're going to get done. And they are the big rocks, right? To bring up the kind of Stephen Covey, seven habits of highly effective people, the big rocks versus the pebbles versus the sand, right? If, if, if you guys don't know about that, I would definitely Google it. There's videos on it. But basically the big rocks are the things you really care about. So you can have a cut line for, hey, we're definitely, everyone's committed to getting these things done. We're going to have a second cut line, you know, several items below that, that we think we can get done. We should be able to get done or get most of them done. And then a cut line below that is kind of like, hey, this is, we all know this is kind of aspirational. If we somehow are crushing things and doing really well, if we get to those items, great, right? So it's kind of having a more of a probabilistic view as opposed to this is the list and you must get it all done. You can kind of do it that way. And same thing on a roadmap. You can say like, you know, now, next, later. Now should be really well-defined and polished. And next should be, you know, pretty relatively. And then later can be a lot less defined and certain. So, yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. One final question. It's been a little while since we talked. I know we, I always ask people like about their, their favorite product. What, what's currently your favorite product? <laughs> well, it's kind of funny. You know, I'm a, as a product guy, it's tough. I mean, I, I mean, we're using Zoom right now, right? So Zoom is certainly helpful in today's work-from-home, shelter-in-place environment. So, I mean, I liked it before. We've all used different tools. As remote workers, we've used, you know, all these different tools. Zoom is really great. I think it's got built a lot of good brand because of the quality of the video. Somehow, they, they just managed to have good quality video and usability is good. So it's been funny to see what's going on with their stock. You know, their stock has been kind of... Uh, going up as people say, well, more people are working from home. So anyway, I like Zoom a lot with my kids. They're using Zoom at school. So I was just actually doing Zoom technical support with one of the teachers the other night, getting her all set up and configuring her room. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with Zoom. You know, I think you could, you could look at video teleconferencing and say, oh, it's a commodity. They're all the same. 
But I think if you've used the different products, you know, you can pick up on some of the differences as to why some provide a better experience than others. But, you know, uh, I think the bar in general is raising. The other ones are good too. It's just that these guys were good earlier. And so I think they built a loyal following. So, Awesome. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Zoom Is it for all of the remote podcasts we have. I think Howard Stern was even recording, you know, his show on Zoom the other day. Uh, since yeah, that's cool. Broadcasting yeah. from a new location, not from a studio in New York City due to right. 19 kind of stuff. But uh, before he gets his right. professional equipment installed, Zoom, Zoom service. Right. So big fan. They've done a good job. Well, if it's a good enough MVP for Howard Stern, then there you go, right? So. <laughs> I think he was he was anxious to get. I mean, you know, it's a it's a multi billion dollar show, right? So oh yeah, he's he's anxious, or at least hundreds of millions of dollars through that show. Uh, so I'm sure he's anxious to get, you know, yeah, a, a little bit more sophisticated, maybe a little a little better, yeah, maybe. But uh, yeah, no, it, it it worked. It worked for him. It works for yeah. us. So. Yeah. Did you see the the John Oliver show? So like he suddenly he was on this like barren like set <laughs> he's at a desk and he's like i'm clearly not project you know clearly not broadcasting for it, but usually do you know he's like you know at the end of the day it gets the job done you get the video you got the audio you no, know i think zoom has been great for people that are you know now working remote and, and, and even for a lot of people that you know haven't been working or for remote it's uh, it's a big win a big step up so yeah well thank you sir it was great having you here today great to chat with you again eric